This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Catherine Alto is an American living in England, a gardener, a landscape designer, a historian, and an author, whose books include The Natural World of Winnie the Pooh and her newest, Writing Wild, which charts the course of 25 women whose influential nature writing has deepened our connection to and understanding of the natural world. These women of the wilds and of words are scholars, spiritual seekers, conservationists, scientists, novelists, and explorers. The book is part memoir, part travel essay, and part cultural history. And Catherine joins us today to share more. Welcome. Thanks, Jennifer. It's nice to join you. So for listeners who might not be familiar with your work, will you get us started on how you came to be interested in this kind of work, and especially as it evolved to be firmly at this intersection between nature and culture and women's voices in that intersection? Sure. That's a great open-ended question. And I first want to say thank you because I have your book, The Earth in Her Hands, on my desk, and I'm enjoying dipping in and out of it. And I do think it's a lovely uh, symbiosis that we were writing about women and nature, but uh, in different ways. Mm -hmm grew up uh, in the Central Valley, um, outside of Modesto, in an almond orchard, really. Um, my father was uh, an ag teacher, an agricultural teacher at the high school level, and a garden designer. Um, and I definitely, I got his green eyes and I got his green thumb. I grew up raising uh cattle and sheep in FFA. But I also had a real interest in understanding what the Central Valley was before it became big ag. And so it started with um, an interest in what well, what came before the almond trees here and what became before the cornfields and peach orchards and tomato fields and cotton and rice. Um, so it started by looking uh, down at my feet. Um, and then uh, when I went to Berkeley, I became interested, well, I read Henry David Thoreau, and I read John Muir, and I read Gary Snyder, all these wonderful uh, writers who just happened to be men. Um, and I was hugely influenced by them, really interested in how John Muir saw the Central Valley on foot on his walk from San Francisco to Yosemite. And he saw, you know, grasslands and oaks and grizzlies. And also, you know, the language that Gary Snyder, also a Californian, uses uh, in his poetry. Uh, and then Henry David Thoreau uh, instilled this interest in sort of what is American and what is it? mean to be American. And also for me, what came before that even. So I, I had a real interest in, in natural history. Um, but also one of the most profound people I studied with was not in the English department, um, but in the forestry department the, and the College of Natural Resources. And that was Carolyn Merchant, um, who wrote the book, uh, The Death of Nature, which um, describes what the world was like before the scientific revolution in the 16th and 17th century. Um, and that was really important because we, before the, um, we, we viewed, uh, 
the world is sort of mechanical and, and like a machine. We, we viewed it as a cosmos bound together like a, a living organism. And that those were really, really important people and books that shaped um, my interest in narratives of the natural world. I think that, uh, you know, these days I write uh, with words and I write with plants. So I design landscapes and I uh, write about landscapes. Um, and, and so I think my, my, my scope goes from quite local down at my feet when I design a, lands- a garden that has a narrative to it to also uh, environmental history. Um, I'm particularly interested in um, the personal essay and narratives uh, written f- uh, walking. And so uh, a lot of these women in Riding Wild um, are walkers. And um, and uh, the personal essay is is almost like a walk. You start in uh, one place, say, you know, most personal essays in, in the nature writing genre have kind of a, a circuitous feeling to them. Uh, like you're walking in a woods, in the woods with a friend, and um, you, you end up back where you started. And and that's what I tried to do in, in all of the 25 essays in um, Writing Wild. It's sort of nature writing about nature writing. Um, yeah, so a few different things going on there. Yeah, the, the, the power of the human scale and the human pace in both walking and the personal essay is really beautifully reflected in these 25 essays you've put together. And I loved the way that many of them, especially for the living women, actually included you walking and or you walking with them. Um, I I thought that was a a lovely mirror of both thought and deed. There's a moment in the introduction where you have, you describe your aha moment of reading the John Muir and being in college and doing your studies and having this, this kind of just connection for you of, of the importance of landscape to our collective consciousness and our collective kind of accountability. And I I found this wonderful. And then the way you bring that into the feminist um, mindset and um, time that we're in now, as well as how that has come to be. Talk about how, so there are 25 women in this book. If you were to give us one kind of mission statement of, of, <laughs> of what you wanted to accomplish in bringing these 25 female voices into our consciousness, what would that be, Catherine? <laughs> well, um, I was trying to write what I never got to read when I was at Berkeley. And, uh, it, when I went on to teach American literature of nature and place at the college level, I was still teaching out of, um, you know, the same sort of chorus of voices. And, um, so I, I wasn't, I, I suppose what I was trying to do is first, you know, write what I never had to read, but the, but a really important thing for me was to make 
the book accessible. Yeah. Uh, I love to sit down and read my scholarly articles. I really like to read what academics are have devoted their careers to, um, you know, a certain time period or, or genre. And I, I really enjoy that. But I wrote the book in some ways for my father. Um, so when I was at when I was at university, I was a women's studies minor. <laughs> so, um, there, but if I could not explain advanced feminist theory to my ag teaching dad, I would have to sort of start over again. And um, so I was writing um, not something for people necessarily at university levels, um, but something that was a field guide for the general reader so that things could be um, kind of knocked out of the ivory tower and uh, uh, introduced and explained and really uh, uh, in, in, in accessible language. Uh, of course, I do analyze things at certain points, but I try to do it like I'm a friend on a walk in the woods. Um, so I, I, I really try to have that. And I, I will say um, for the listener that this is absolutely not uh, feminism as exceptionalism. This is this is adding some representation to the extent that we're able to at this point, and to keep that representation as we move forward. Because the importance of having the greatest representation possible in these conversations is of benefit to all of us. Exactly. I agree with you, Jennifer. And um, one thing I do say to the reader is that um, while it, it really is important to turn up the volume on narratives written by women, it's never a time to knock what anyone um a man or woman has done well. So I say to the reader that in no way could I dismiss the uh, contributions of my hero, right. Henry David Thoreau, than I can dislodge Andy Gibb at the Bee Gees <laughs> from my preteen years of dancing in front of a mirror. I just could I cannot do it. So I am not, um, I am not, you know, uh, debunking anything. I'm saying, hey, there, in addition to these wonderful voices and the wonderful insights, these are some of the reasons why we don't we didn't hear from women why I knew nothing about Dorothy Wordsworth until maybe three mm. years ago that I knew nothing about um, Susan Fenimore Cooper's uh, rural right. hours and I knew nothing about Jean Stratton Porter all these women um, you know I knew Rachel Carson and of course um, uh, Mary Oliver uh, and and some other voices but they are were by no means uh, even half a third of a quarter of the, the the big anthologies that I was reading. Right. So did you take this uh, concept to the publisher? The book started, uh, <laughs> I was reading a, uh, my Twitter feed and I follow Outside Magazine because I'm outdoorsy. And uh, there was a book, um, I'm sorry, an article entitled Essential Books for the Well-Read Traveler. And I, I, I clicked on it and I opened it up and uh, really quickly looked at the date of when it was published, uh, which was 15 years ago, uh, or now 18 years ago. And then I, I looked at, I skimmed, I had read most of the books and then I realized, wait, mo 22 out of the 25 books recommended are by white guys. And I said, okay, that's it. And I wrote a, 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 a fun, but slightly gently snarky response to the article. And the, 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 the uh, person handling their social media said, hey, why don't you write a rebuttal? 
and I wrote a rebuttal. It was printed in outside the online version of outside and it got a huge response outside was uh, being lauded as finally including uh, nature essays and nature writing by women of color women it was a, a real diverse um, article uh, celebrating women over about 200 years and from there timber press said hey are you writing a book on that? And I said, no, would you like me to? (laughs) How did you narrow down to the final 25? Because you were clearly faced with one of the same problems that I was, which was you can't include everyone. And there are so many you want to include. What was your criteria? And I think the other thing that was a real challenge that you handled beautifully was moving from historical women we don't have the opportunity to know more about and living women that you were actually able to walk with in person and speak with in person. Yeah, well, um, I wanted to include a broad spectrum. So uh, classic, new, and overlooked writers. So I I knew that I wanted to have that spectrum. I wanted to reach farther back, as as far back in the nature writing genre as I could. And so what that initially, I uh, went back only to Susan Fenimore Cooper's book, Rural Hours, which was published in 1850. and then uh, based on my friendship with uh, James Rebanks, who wrote The Shepherd's Life, uh, uh, up in, he's, a, he's a shepherd up in the Lake District, um, he said, well, you, you might want to learn a little bit more about Dorothy Wordsworth. And so I did. Um, and so, uh, so I uh, ended up um, doing a lot of research at Dove Cottage and the research center there and climbing Scothell Pike, which took to, me, to we Americans, it's about 3,000 feet, but it's the tallest mountain in England. So um, I climbed Scothell Pike to get the a view that inspired the original lake poets and inspired, um, you know, romanticism and really nature writing. Um, and so my very first essay is following in Dorothy Wordsworth's footsteps to the top of Scothell Pike. Um, and um, and that's I, that I thought was the most inspiring opening to the book. Um, and so we start with someone who's been overlooked. Dorothy Wordsworth was um, uh, lived her life in the shadow of her brother, but she kept journals. And um, one of the most famous poems in the English language, which is Daffodils by, by her brother, William Wordsworth, was actually partially nicked from her journal. Um, and so I thought, well, that was that's an, an interesting story there, um, that they were. She was on a walk with her brother. They both had these uh, reactions to these daffodils on Oldswater Lake. Um, she wrote about her experience in her journal, which she kept open. And many of the lake poets sort of looked at it and um, remembered experiences. But her brother, I don't want to say plagiarized, but he definitely lifted it. And I don't think Dorothy Wordsworth would have minded, but we could mind for her. So I started with her. Um, and went through, and then I went back and forth between, the, admittedly, the United States and 
and uh, and and the United Kingdom, um, because that is where nature writing has a, has a tradition. Um, and so I would I bounced back and forth between the two areas, looking for women who were pioneers in the subgenres. So, for example, Dorothy Wordsworth was a, a, a pioneer for walking, um, and her her very first writing. Um, and then uh, Susan Fenimore Cooper, because everyone thinks that Henry David Thoreau's Walden was the first was America's first nature writing, and actually it was uh, uh, the first book on nature writing was by Susan Fenimore Cooper, Rural Hours, written four years before Walden. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, speaking today with historian naturalist Catherine Alto, whose newest book, Writing Wild, recenters and gives voice to a diversity of women naturalists and writers across time. We'll be back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. The importance of voice. This keeps coming back to me from this conversation with Catherine Alto and her process amplifying the voices, sometimes reanimating the voices of the 25 main women she features in this overview and the close to 60 she covers, including side paths of other women in the book. The power of our voices is everything. Cumulatively, the power of our combined voices or lack of our voices, changes the way our entire culture sounds, speaks, and is understood, and therefore everything about how it is effective or not. And as anyone who understands the power of manifesting, the power of our voices, in effect, creates the world we live in with each and every day. This last six months has shown us the power of many voices combined to be heard. We can't always affect overnight or lasting change with one gesture or one statement, but we can keep speaking, we can keep amplifying, and our small gestures to lift others' voices ripple out and join a larger sound wave. So as Catherine says in the course of our interview, Use your voice, your vote, your dollars, your own small places to amplify the voices whose sound and fury and hope echo the world you want to hear. Buy their books, rate and review their books, donate to these people, share them forward with friends. If you find value in someone's voice, please, and by all means, Use and raise your own voice in your own ways to amplify these songs of representation, inclusion, growth, and change. Whose voices meant something to you today, this week, this last six months? Raise them up. We're back now to our conversation with Catherine Alto, whose new book, Writing Wild, charts often unheard women's voices in nature writing. As we come back, she talks about moving from her historic, long-dead women in the book to the more contemporary voices, from Gretel Ehrlich and Leslie Marmon Silko to Laurette Savoy and Camille Dungy. 
So then I moved into the 20th century, making sure that I had a balance between historians, scientists, um, poets, walkers, spiritual seekers, um, Pulitzer Prize nominated authors. And so I was looking for each, for pioneers in each sub-sub-genre. So I didn't I, I love Terry Tempest Williams, for example, and her book Refuge, um, but I, I did not include her in one of the 25 essays, she's in a side path, because um, Gretel Ehrlich wrote about the American West, first woman to write a, a memoir about um, um, healing in the American West. So because of that criteria, there were lots of a million micro decisions that I made along the way, but I made sure to nod to as many women as possible, not only in the essay itself, but in the side paths and you know other reading that I recommend. And this was one of the great joys of reading the book is that um, the richness of their work in terms of what you just, you know, stated, um, and they're all kind of intersection, intersecting and overlapping. And I, I found this to be, it was just very, very human because none of us are one thing. We are all many. And um, all of these topics are incredibly relevant today. Uh, you know, what, and I think you point this out in the, in the, either the Wordsworth or the uh, Fenimore Cooper piece that it could, like what she was writing could easily be read today. And it's still the same truth that we're talking about, whether it's mourning the continuing loss of real wild or, um, you know, the role of women in our, our world. As you were putting them together, these 25 essays, and you were sort of mapping some of these pathways of theirs, what were, were there surprises for you? Were there universal threads that kept coming out and coming out and coming out? What, what were some of your greatest revelations in the work, Catherine? Um, well, you know, I was really looking at um, diversity um, as well. I was looking at what makes this particular woman's writing um, distinct. And so I was looking to move the reader from, you know, the 1800s to the present. Um, surprising things was, well, for one thing, I, I've often found that nature writing has felt like being in a Sunday school classroom, that very much like a sermon um, about, you know, and, 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 and in this Anthropocene, we are at a point where, you know, you can't really laugh at a, it's like laughing at a funeral. That's inappropriate. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't humor and joy. Um, so I was looking for a range of emotion, a range of backgrounds. So for example, I have uh, Elena Passarello, who wrote the wonderful book, Animal Strike Curious Poses. She's a trained actress and her She's a great humor writer. She is so funny. It's probably one of the funniest books about, funniest books, period, but about animals. And so I wanted to be sure that um, that dimension of the nature writing genre, which might be new to a lot of people, that it's represented in there. As an undergrad, I wrote my thesis in Native American literature. But when I went back and reread Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco, I was... Um, 
surprised at how relevant the book still is. So uh, Silco is the first uh, female uh, Native American novelist, and that's why she's featured in the book. There's also many other Native American writers I mentioned too. Uh, But for her, because she was a pioneer, I I had the opportunity to to write about her. So um, that so to bring ceremony and make it more relevant to uh, readers now was really important because we have really high rates of suicides amongst uh, military veterans. Um, and um, ceremony is about, um, in real life, uh, Silco's cousins came back from war quite wounded and people didn't know what was happening. Um, and, you know, so ceremony is about Teo, this fictional character, um, who um, is trying to get better. He's mentally ill. He's got PTSD now. Um, And uh, the book was quite popular amongst um, Vietnam veterans, but how can ceremony be relevant now? So that was one thing that was really important. And the relevance comes from understanding that uh, we are that we need to understand. Uh, we need to have a really great sense of place, um, understanding the plants that grow in an area, um, and the people, and and understanding our place in the universe, in in our neighborhood, in our region, um, and so forth. And and uh, Tayo, the character, undergoes a ceremony and 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 learns to heal himself by by uh, understanding that he is part of the landscape. Um, and that's that was really important. You could see horticultural therapy is being used with veterans these days, um, and um, so that was that was one one um, aspect of of Silco's work of you know one one example of one author where the book is still really relevant and represents a community um, you know uh, that has been underrepresented in nature writing. Um, also, I felt like Diane Ackerman. Um, I think again. Um, Nature writing can be very uh, Sunday school-esque, and I call her nature writing's Aphrodite. She is a beautiful erotic writer. She has beautiful rich language, and I describe in the book what one of my graduate school um, colleagues felt about her writing. He loved uh, Hemingway. Well, uh, Ackerman is no Hemingway. She's just absolutely like a lush red Cabernet versus, you know, a dry martini. (laughs) I love that diversity again. Mm-hmm. Um, Laurette Savoy um, is really, really, really fascinating. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, Laurette, uh, Professor Savoy, I should say, is uh, is a professor of geology at Mount Holyoke. Um, she has sort of this understanding of, of the dimension of time that I think we often don't have because we often we, we live in the present. And so to have someone who is has a very uh, interesting mixed race background, Native American, European American and Anglo American and this deep time understanding. Um, and so it's a memoir of, of who she is. And it it really cracked open my perspective of who I am. And so after I, I wrote wrote that piece and, and read Trace, I wrote a letter to my great, 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 great grandchildren, and it's sealed mm. up and ready for them to read 200 years in the future about who I am and where they came from, because we lose that sense of who we are and these narratives about where we've come from and where we've been. And so I that was this deep time journey with, with Laurette. Um, and um, 
Carolyn Finney and Camille Dungy as well um, are are African American writers who who got me thinking a lot more deeply about what it means to be privileged and white in and moving through the natural world. Um, Carolyn Finney wrote the book. Uh, Black space, black faces, white spaces, um, and that that is a whole journey. Uh, and I invite readers and listeners to explore her book. Camille Dungy writes about what it feels like to be an you know African American woman and writing about being a mother and the problems with that for her because so many you know African Americans uh, as slaves were treated as you know as animals she says and that it was very problematic for her to to write about what it feels like to uh, to to be a mother she says that it can be damaging for uh, women of color to write about their bodies this way but she said she feels most comfortable that way doing it. And so I wanted to give as many diverse women their own voices. We've got uh, really generous excerpts from their writing. Um, and I, I really wanted to sort of turn things over to, to women, even if they are deceased, to, to let them speak uh, through their writing. Um, what else did I learn? Um, well, I think, I, well, I end the book with um, thoughts about uh, Elizabeth Rush's Pulitzer Prize nominated book Rising and um we we I end that um essay on the topic of how do women feel about bringing children into a world that has been so changed climate wise and how do we is there a, how can we do it and um so Elizabeth Rush who's now I think as we speak she's 8 months pregnant got me thinking about the importance of everybody having a maternal view toward the natural world uh, and that is that we don't need to be biological parents it's we don't need to be female we can be men who have a very caring uh, uh way of acknowledging systems that are that that the world that sort of the Gaia hypothesis. It's not really a hypothesis. The idea that the earth is living and breathing as if it were a friend or a person sitting next to us and that we need to take care of it in a very maternal way. Um, So I end the book in a kind of a, I don't want to say feminist way, but a maternal way, a very gentle way of, of looking at the world. So, I mean, this is just, there were 25 women and many side paths that were, you know, as um, enlightening to me as well, but that just gives you a sense of of the the journey for me as a, as a writer, and I hope for the reader as well. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, speaking today with historian and nature writer Catherine Alto, whose newest book, Writing Wild, recenters and gives voice to a diversity of women naturalists and writers across time. We'll be back for more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, we're now into July, past the summer solstice and the July full moon, past the 4th of July. I've been thinking a lot about the importance of seasonality and the attendant ritual and ceremony cultures and their religions across time and space have incorporated into each seasonal marker. The sun rising and setting, the seasons and moons waxing and waning, 
seeds being sown, germinating, growing, flowering, and setting seeds again. Years passing, so many tree rings added to the girth of our experience. The human need and gravitational pull towards ceremony is well documented, and Catherine Alto reiterates that beautifully in her book and in our conversation today. Just as Leslie Marmon Silco did in her groundbreaking work, Ceremony, published in 1977. Both of these remind me of the conversation with Jamaica Kincaid last week and the discussion around redemption. What will redeem us? What will redeem our cultural failures, our environmental and our economic failures, our well-being failures? There are a multiplicity of urgencies right now. They are rising and converging. For many of us, the act of gardening is its own ceremony and ritual. It is literal worship manifesting food, beauty, community, and habitat out of air, soil, water, and hand-in-hand engagement with these elements. In an interview I listened to last week on the Emergence Magazine podcast, I heard the philosopher Martin Shaw refer to the small places on which we make our lives, for you and me, those being places on which we partner with our gardens. He referred to them as our individual prayer rugs. This image registered right in my core. To visualize the fabric of my garden or your garden as a series of seed stitches binding me to the greater natural world. To visualize this living prayer rug on which I stand as one voice in the rising chorus of praise songs being hummed, chanted, sung by a multiplicity of voices also converging to meet these converging urgencies. And day by day, song by song, seed stitch by seed stitch, garden by garden, ritual by ritual, we compose and craft and grow a new creation story to live by. We're back now to our conversation with Catherine Alto, whose new book, Writing Wild, charts often unheard women's voices in the field of nature writing. As we come back, she's describing the correlation between science and our connection to nature. I think it's really important these days to be science literate. And I think one of the most important roles that nature writers have is making scientifically complex topics understandable to the you know to the everyday person so that we can understand and make the most informed decisions um, about how about the best way to be in the world and you know we're we're having our conversation in uh, early May here and these early, mid early pandemic days I don't know what phase we're in right now um, and I think people you know people who are handling this well are listening to the scientists but that moves action but what moves hearts are the uh, are the poets and so 
for for me, I like to read narrative or creative nonfiction that is beautifully written, but um, but conveys information and facts in compelling ways. And that's what most of these women do. Um, you know, um, you have people like um, Annie Dillard who write about, um, you know, meta- metaphysics and uh, and a, a spirituality with the natural world. And then you have people like... Um, who else do we have? Robin Wall Kimmerer. Right. Um, yeah, who writes about she's a trained, you know, she's a scientist and botanist and she interweaves uh, so many different ways of seeing from uh, her uh, Native American background, scientific background, um, and, you know, in, in the English language in a beautiful, poetic way. Um, and so, yes, that yin yang, as you say, is is really important, and I um, I definitely tried to weave it in there and and have a balance between those poets and spiritual seekers uh, alongside the underrepresented and and the mavericks too. Yeah, they're all in there. Well, and I think that um, this line of exploration and inquiry on your part, um, not dissimilar from um, the audience that I feel to me my my kind of home audience of gardeners is that Mm. in working with land, whether it's your home garden or walking, you know, hiking in Yosemite or Yellowstone or the Adirondacks or uh, the United Kingdom, that is where you understand that science is not separate and we are not separate. It is all one thing um, to be living and science is merely uh, the effort to understand these systems that we rely on and interfere with and love. Exactly. And um, the other thing about um, I, I'm glad you mentioned gardeners because, in addition to the science and understanding, say botany or you know seasons in a, a you know and having that understanding of of sense of place, which I I should say, um, sense of place is that indivisible layer of memories and history and emotion in a place. Um, it sort of overlays a physical landscape like an invisible strata, and that is really what most of these nature writers are trying to tap into this idea of what is a sense of place in a particular area. Um, and, you know, bringing the science in as well um, is really important. But but for gardeners, uh, since you mentioned gardeners, I, one of, one of, uh, well, I enjoyed every single one of these um, essays and researching each woman. It was just like having uh, yeah, it's just wonderful. I never wanted to leave a particular so-called room when I was writing right. about someone. But, right. but since you mentioned gardens, I, uh, I, I live well about four hours west of Sissinghurst Castle Garden, which is regarded as one of the greatest gardens in the world, um, created by Vita Sackville West and her husband, Harold. And, um, she was, um, you know, she was a real plants woman, uh, but she wrote beautifully about uh, the, the Kent, and she won lots of poetry awards. So she's she's known for being this uh, artist of gardens and and this creator of this amazing place. But at the same time, she she understood the background, you know, the history of of plants and where they moved around, um, and she could write beautiful narratives in just a sent, you know, a paragraph 
about a, about a plant. Um, so that particular essay was 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 really really enjoyable to write about, and um, I feel like I also want to say that you know she was a bit of a sapphic rebel, and I wanted to include. Um, you know, uh, women who were, um, were diverse in many different ways, not only from where they lived, uh, but their gender, um, race. So race, gender, ethnicity, place, all of these things was this incredibly, um, wonderful cocktail for me to make my decisions. But, but Vita is in there and I love that her, her, her name means life actually. And that, um, (laughs) her greatest legacy was, was leaving this living legacy of, of Sissinghurst. Yeah. The so you you said this when you were discussing um bringing Leslie Marmon Silco and ceremony into the work and the importance of that for you and you said the that it's important to have this sense of place that you just described and I I I think I would love to ask you why? Why do you think this is important? Why do you think that exploring the idea of wildness as we lose it, as it currently exists, as it exists inside of us, what is at that the heart of that exploration for you that is important to get across to all of us? Well, in ceremony... Um, the the lead char- the main character Tayo is not well because he is displaced. He is mentally displaced. He was he's been physically displaced. He's also mixed race, so he's neither here and neither there. And so, through the ceremony, he eventually comes back into uh, oneness and this sense of feeling. Uh, better spiritually, physically, and he cared about the world around him. One of the last scenes is when he um, he is being given a lift back to where he lives, and he asks to be let out of the car, the truck, I believe, and he wants to walk on the side of the road. And as he walks, he's really careful about where he steps. He doesn't want to step on any grasshoppers. And that is such a contrast to the beginning of the book where he's drinking and the world is this haze. So what gardening and what walking and what um, being in the world and reading about these places, it roots us to a place. They're like mini ceremonies. And when we go out for a walk, we feel better immediately. When we put our hands in dirt as gardeners, it is restorative. Um, and all these little acts that we do when we have contact, when, you know, for me these days, I have been going on lots of running, lots of runs every morning. I go out and out and out along the River X and I um, see things and hear things that I didn't before. I would go out most evenings and walk, but now I I just do something slightly, I'm up at dawn. It's very, very important for me. And what's happening is that I'm setting down new layers of strata and I'm caring more about uh, uh, in, in small ways about, I didn't, there are three new warblers I didn't know about. And that's really important for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm watching cygnets hatch from March 6th. I saw the swans putting their nests together and now I watched them hatch last week and they're initially five and now four cygnets, um, you know, swimming in the river X. So what that does is it, it helps us become, um, it taps into, uh, 
the fact that we are actually not separate from the natural world. We say nature writing as if we're separate from the natural world. Um, we are animals. We are, and we often forget that we are part of the fabric and that there's a life what that I would say is greater, the greater than human life is out there that, and there are ecosystems and, um, uh, fabric that we don't recognize that we need to recognize and, and get back to, um, where we, where we ought to be. Um, so Silco is, I mean, I could talk about every single, you know, each of the women and what, what, what they can do f- for us. Um, but I think because all of them are trying to either tap into an essential wildness to understand our place in the, in the world before, we tipped it out of its uh, um, healthier state, um, and also uh, trying to understand um, what what came before us as well. So there's this seeking this this wildness, and and also understanding what what is innately wild in ourselves, um, and what makes us feel better. Um, and so each woman is 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 seeking an understanding of that essential wildness. So there is this, I think, I, I think that one of the things I take away and from, from what you just said, but also from reading the book and learning about some of these new women and revisiting some of the women I knew was that just the importance of this reintegration and reconceptualization um, that makes it better for, for us, but also puts us in a greater position of accountability and that nurturing care that you end the essays with. The importance of, of reconceptualizing our place and reintegrating ourselves with this place, whether this place is the entire globe seen from a geological time frame like Savoy's or um, our exact immediate places experienced through where we walk and the, the signets we see born. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the best way best comments I can make on that is um, that where we feel where do we feel alive and where do we feel healthy and clear minded um, mm-hmm. in the natural world? I think that that's that's really an important barometer. <laughs> um, where do we what what landscapes can we visit or cultivate right outside our door that make us feel better? But also not just you know, egocentrically, but how does it help us understand, um, seasons, um, cycles and, um, understanding the world as this living, breathing, um, entity that needs us to curtail our behavior. (laughs) And I think, and, you know, you look at someone, a writer like, um, you know, Andrea Wolf, who writes about natural history and she's really interested in, uh, people from the enlightenment and you can see people who are, whose, whose actions and, and, um, decisions have, have either, um, you know, added to our knowledge or mistakes people are making along the way or, or contacts that, that, you know, people are making. Um, Sachi Lloyd was also really interesting to me. I, I hadn't read much cli-fi, which is a climate change fiction. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So she, she really, um, gets the reader to think about the world 
uh, you know, in the future, do we, in her wonderful um, uh, YA book, young adult books, um, for example, the Carbon Diaries, get people to think about how, uh, you know, to imagine ourselves in a world where we are carbon rationing and that we cannot do certain, we, we can only use a certain amount of carbon. And um, it, it, I'm sure a, a lot of people are thinking about concrete ways now to to change our behavior. And, and, and she is one of these, one of many, dozens and dozens of male and female cli-fi writers who get us to imagine, you know, a better way to live in the world. And not all dystopian. That means you look at um, right. solar, uh, this, this solar fiction, uh, or it's called solar punk. Um, and that is a sub-sub-genre where books uh, about um, narratives of a, of worlds that are doing well where people are relying on solar wind um and 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 so forth that the world can be a better place so people like her are giving us hope of what we can be and it just shows you the importance of um writers in imagining a better future yeah and i think you have just answered this to some extent but maybe there's something you would like to add when you think about your book entering into the world and these stories being you know expanded on and spread and shared what how do you measure success with your work on this book catherine success would be uh that these women uh who uh, are alive have their books bought up. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so uh, reading uh, more cli-fi, reading, reading all the women in these books, um, uh, whether or not they're, they're living or have passed on, I think that the wisdom that they can provide us now is really important. They can uh, inspire us to um, – to think in new spiritual ways. They can inspire us to take longer walks. They can inspire us to not be afraid of um, venturing into scientific realms or gardening realms or natural history realms that might be, that might challenge our viewpoints. I mean, I can tell you that, you know, there was, there were a, a few, I wanted to be challenged in, along the way. So I was reading and reading and reading until I don't, I don't, I don't read always to have my views affirmed. I want to read to grow and expand. So my hope is that people use my book as a field guide to these other women and that the book is accessible. So, you know, if my my um the, my ideal reader as when i was writing the book was uh was <laughs> was uh maybe someone like my father who didn't who wasn't so you know who would say women's studies what are you what are you wasting your money on um <laughs> someone who who um uh, is open to reading a field guide and having an amiable person non-threatening um say you know check out this trail you might want to go down that way that's that this is what you might find along the way. So I am, I'm a field guide who is looking up at the constellations, who are these women. And I'm saying, look up to the constellations, look what you can see. And I back out of the narrative and that's fine. It's not about me. It's about introducing the wisdom of, of, of these uh, wonderful multidimensional writers and how they can help us live better um, now and in the future. Mm-hmm. And the importance of all of this, uh, it was there before COVID, 
by by all means it's been there for for years as these women are testament to has any of this changed or intensified or evolved in any way for you during this last you know two months of uh this global collective urgency well Carol, I go back to Carolyn Merchant, who's the um, environmental historian, um, and um, I have long, well, since I read, you know, The Death of Nature when I was 22 or so, I have always felt that 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 our relationship with the natural world is is not um, right at this point, um, and it's taken a pandemic for, I think, a lot of people to realize that we need to, I mean, look at the natural world. We were, you know, um, uh, pollution's going down. People are breathing better. Um, in, in Milan, they are planning to increase pedestrian and bicycle lanes because people are realizing how clean the air is. And in Venice, the, everyone's seen these pictures, you know, that, that you've got um, octopus and uh, other fish uh, swimming in clearer, you know, canals in Venice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's showing that uh, our interference and the amount of carbon that we're putting in the world, um, that our systems, basically we need to overthrow <laughs> a lot of, not let's say overthrow, but we need to revisit and go this may be the the push that we're getting to go into what Carolyn Merchant has long called the age of sustainability. We cannot sustain where we have been, and um, so I am I am really hopeful. Actually, um, I'm hopeful that there will be a vaccine. I'm hopeful of you know the, the the number of people who are gardening these days, the um, the amount of retro, uh, introspection, um, and the the um, a number of people who are reading and buying books online. We may Mm -hmm. not have that um, sociability that we love as humans, but it's, it's, a correction has taken place and it's an incredible moment. Um, for me, it's quite, um, you know, I'm, 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 I, I try not to read the headlines every day. I do, but um, I can't do anything about it. But what I can do is I can um, control where I buy things, where I invest things, um, and where I, and how I, you know, travel and my food, where it comes from. Um, and we can insist on, you know, leaders who can, um, support policies that lead us into this age of sustainability. Um, because everybody likes to see blue skies. People want to be living healthy lives. And these women, give us perspective. And so people have asked me, like, who would you recommend starting with? And I would say Carolyn Merchant. And the reason is because um, I wouldn't call her a nature writer. I would call her, she's an environmental historian. So while in nature writing, I look at all women are sort of like a tree trees in a forest, but Carolyn Merchant describes how the forest came to be in the first place. Mm -hmm. So if I, so I mean, people can pick and choose anywhere. Um, you know, it might be that the solace of Mary Oliver's poetry is really important or Kathleen Jamie's poetry or Rebecca Solnit's book on, you know, um, a field guide to getting lost. All of these are wonderfully reassuring opportunities. Um, but, but Carolyn Merchant says, this is where we've been. This is where we, where we need to go um, in a, in a, in the biggest 
perspective of, of all the writers in, in, the, in Writing Wild. Um, that's where I would recommend people start. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It was really wonderful to speak with you and hear more about your process and your purpose in this wonderful book. Thank you. And thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me. It's been such a lovely hour with you. Thank you. Catherine Alto is an American living in England, a gardener, a landscape designer, a historian, and author. Her book, Writing Wild, charts the course of 25 women, poets, ramblers, and mavericks who shape how we see the natural world. Join us again next week when we continue with some great summer reading, which often plums the depths of imagination. For Matthew Hall, gardener and researcher at Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, the imagination of plants is what matters. Matthew joins Cultivating Place to explore botanical mythology. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio, now also heard weekly on KWMR in Point Reyes Station on California's northern coast. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, you will not want to miss this week's episode notes and beautiful photographs from the book Writing Wild. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.